You're about to listen to a Gods and Movie Makers bonus episode. As promised in our season one finale, we'll be releasing all of our bonus chats where we talk to our guests about pedagogy, research and film. We recommend listening to our main episode before this bonus chat for the full context of our discussion. For more information about the podcast, the films discussed and reading suggestions, head on over to our website godsandmoviemakers.com. And now for our bonus chat with Dr. Laura O'Brien. Hello to our lovely subscribers. We're back with Dr. Laura O'Brien and we're here to talk about Joan of Arc and pedagogy. So welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Would you use either or both of these films you're watching in a classroom or an other teaching platform or part of your research? And preempting slightly, I know you do. So would you like to tell us a little bit about how you use them? The main thing I think, the main appeal of using these films, especially for students who are maybe not medievalists or not looking at Joan from perhaps a religious or theological perspective, would be to show how the same person and the same material can have a very different effect through the same medium, but when mediated in a very different way in cinema. Because of the the, the authenticity of the text, because they're using the trial documents as the central kind of source material, for what Joan is saying and and the way that she is presented and the way she presents herself. They're so different, even though they're dealing with the same thing. And I think that's a really useful aid for helping students to think about how cinema in its own way is a form of historical writing because you're telling a story in a certain way. And I think it would it, it, the fact that Joan is multiplied, interpreted in all these different ways, you, can, you could bring any of the other films in as well. You could bring in Joan the Woman and have the question of why do they put a romance in? Mm. You could bring in some of the sort of Jones from the tw- 20th, 21st century and how she is depicted then. She's a great example of firstly how the same person can be shown in lots of different ways with the same material, but also how historical cinema uses these historical figures to reflect the times that they're in and to to use this person as a a figure that can be adapted, reinterpreted over and over again. And how that's kind of okay because we'll never really know the true Joan other than what she has left us Hmm. and I think for for someone looking at historical film I think that's particularly powerful. Are there any articles or texts that you like to use to hit on some of these broader themes of reception of a historical figure or historical event on film? John Aberth, A Night at the Movies, has a chapter that's just about Joan. And there is uh, an essay by Robin Blates in a book about Joan of Arc called Joan of Arc, A Saint for All Reasons, um, which I think is a great name for a, <laughs> a great name for a book. So it looks at different aspects of Joan's personality. So I think that text, Abeth chapter, there's also a book about Joan, again by Robin Blates, Visions of the Maid, Joan of Arc in American Film and Culture. And that's a really good case study of Joan as read through multiple different forms, basically, in a particular non-French culture, which I think adds an extra layer of interest. Mm. That, to me, I think is something that if people are looking for a study in how a historical figure gets adapted in multiple different forms, it works on that level and it works as an example of really good work on, on Joan in popular culture as well. So I think that's probably what I would recommend. Yeah, that sounds like a great resource yeah. to be able to take a case study, but then use it yeah. like, if you're looking at a different person or a different time period. I mean, in a way, like it's it's been important for me in thinking about Napoleonic performance because it's not the same phenomenon, but it's he is very similar to her in the sense of like there's there are you know there are Joan movies from the beginning of cinema and there are also Napoleon movies from the beginning of cinema. They are just very appealing 
for theatre and for for the screen as well. So I, I think yeah, this I'm I'm kind of I'm giving a big nod to to Robin Blades's mm. approach in tackling some of these questions as well. Yeah. Can I ask from a practical perspective of teaching with film? So do you assign mm. the film for students to go away and watch, or do you show bits of it? And how do you like if you're limited maybe to an hour or two hours in a lecture? How do you get through these things that you're not just or maybe you are just screening a film for the lecture, but how does this work practically? I mean, I think it's it's really difficult to do film screenings. We can offer them and some of the students will come and some of them don't. The good thing about some of these films is that, especially with 1928, the 1928 Passion of Arc, it is available online. The quality isn't great, but you can watch it online. The 1948 film, I think, might also be. Learning on screen, also accessible for students. UK institutions should have access so you can watch it there. So I think it's it's generally more likely that they're going to watch it if you say, here's the link, here's how you can access it, go and watch it in your own time. Because they watch films in a different way to us. Or not to us, but like this is a streaming generation. They may binge, they may not binge, they may come back to something. You have to be aware of the fact that they're consuming media in a very different way to just putting on a DVD. Like mm. that's alien to them. And then usually what we would do is is show some clips in in the class and you know I think for our new course one of the things that we're going to do with the assessments is to ask students to pick a scene mm. and to write about a scene which may or may not be one that they have looked at in detail in the classroom but it may be one that they've they've spotted or, or noted while they were looking at the film at home and then use that to write about you know again I keep going back to it but like when you've got a five and a half hour Napoleon epic on your hands and you're like I really want to show you all of this. I would like to show you the end sequence, but I don't have three screens to project it in the right way. Mm. So you have to pick and choose and you can kind of make decisions about about what gets shown and what, what doesn't. I do think that the extent of streaming platforms does make life a lot easier now. It's just a problem, though, to assume that everybody has access to Netflix or Prime Video or what have you. Movie is great. I think, I hope they still have the Pasolini gospel according to saint matthew but again you're assuming people can access or are paying for this stuff and accessing it mm. i would like to see greater access to these kind of resources for educational purposes and learning on screen is great in that respect but it doesn't really go far enough i think in terms of, of providing access to to these kind of vital things i'd also like to see the criterion collection being streamable over this side of the atlantic but mm. that's a whole other issue yeah a bfi also you have to pay mm-hmm for access there and that yeah uh, yeah institutional access to bfi would be so great please do that (laughs) if you have a partnership with bfi in your institution they have an institutional deal but i I, it's not universal it's not like box of broadcasts or whatever they call it now so it's frustrating Mm. also when is the bbc archive going to come online Mm. that's another issue i'm always struck by film is such a valuable teaching tool Mm. and it can be so good for generating conversation or even just I really like the idea of thinking differently about source material when you've got quite a radical reinterpretation. Yeah. But is that like, it's a time and investment and you have to, like, if you want to get the most out of it, you have to actively watch these things. Especially if it's a silent film, you have to kind of actively watch. Mm. So it's that that balancing act of how much time do learners have and what are your expectations of how they'll access it. But with also, there's so much fruit to get stuck into when you Mm. do engage with these things so it's a a really great thing to do I think I feel like I I want to be a student in the class as well (laughs) 
<laughs> I hope I hope we I hope we do we do it all justice. I mean, I think it's going to be quite a broad sweeping thing, and we're going to be covering all sorts, and we have to kind of cut stuff down, and you know, uh, it's it's going to be fun. But it's it is the kind of thing that we've we're kind of making it very clear to students that they have to, as you say, actively watch. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that we decided to do the course was because students love doing stuff about historical film, but they don't necessarily get the the toolkit, I guess, for how to watch a film actively, critically. Mm. They aren't they aren't necessarily exposed to that kind of language, and or or they their understanding of historical film is, as we were saying earlier on, is is all about is this accurate or not, mm. and it's kind of about pushing pushing them beyond the is this accurate or not approach Mm -hmm. and it's the same goes for things like paintings of the past and so on as well but i think it's particularly powerful with film given that it's a big thing of like this film distorts the past Mm -hmm. and it's like if we recognize that yeah i mean this is the rhetoric every single time anything comes out and the crown every single season has to go through this i think on one hand it's great because it means People are really engaging with history. They're yeah. asking questions of the media that they consume. And so the fact that people go after watching a movie or watching an episode of something like The Crown and they Google how accurate is this, you can actually track Google searches for these things after this stuff drops and they go up. So mm. we see that people really are asking these historical questions. And so having those articles that address those basic questions that can come up in a Google search that say, oh, it got this wrong and it got that wrong and it got this is what it actually was and that's what it actually was. They are good. They are useful for filling in the information that viewers want. But at the same time, because that's all that it's presenting, Mm. it's not educating viewers at all Mm. about, as you're saying, how to watch a period piece what they should be expecting to get from a period piece what sorts of questions they might want to ask beyond yeah where's accuracy where's inaccuracy i think i think that's that's really important and i think the crown is a really good example of this because i really like the crown but yeah at the same time i recognize that there are things that it glosses over and there are things that it talks about in a different way and there's an order it, put, it compresses narratives together it presents things in a different way but that's telling a story right like mm-hmm. that's I mean, there's a controversy at the moment about this film that's just come out, The Last King, about the uncovering of Richard III's body. Yeah. Oh, yes. The narrative in the film is that the woman who apparently was like arguing for Richard to be found, blah, 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 that she was screwed over by university academics who were mean to her and who in the Mm. film are shown to mock Richard's disability, to treat her really badly and so on. And that is not an accurate reflection of what was happening. At all. At all. Mm-hmm. I think that's horrendous because those are private individuals. They're not the Queen or Joan of Arc or, mm. you mm-hmm. know, like a celebrity. They are private individuals. And yet their story, their their personalities are being shown as 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 misogynistic, as ableist, as cruel for the sake of this narrative of the plucky underdog fights against the academics. Mm. And... Some people would say, well, how can you say that's bad? But yes, agree with kind of willful misinterpretation in The Crown or in something else. And it's like, well, those people are public figures and historic figures. They are they are historical figures now. Mm-hmm. They, these people are regular mm-hmm. academics, archaeologists, administrators who just have to go and live their lives. And they're named in this. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a difference there. When we talk to students about accuracy or lack of accuracy and so on, 
it sometimes is contradictory, but you are dealing with private individuals versus historic public figures. And I think that is something that's quite important in terms of that discussion around taking liberties. I agree. The basic distinction that I make is should historians criticize a film simply on the grounds of inaccuracy? And the answer is no. Mm -hmm. But is that inaccuracy doing harm? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it somehow undoing or breaking away an important bit of historical understanding? Is it reinforcing a stereotype or prejudice? Mm. And as you're saying, you know, these are living people who are not public figures Mm. and making accusations. And I thought the same thing about Imitation Game Mm. and how it represented Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. It effectively accuses Alan Turing of treason, Mm. and he never committed treason and so to cast that kind of aspersion on somebody who was so marginalized in his own life because of his sexuality i thought was just Mm -hmm. an atrocious thing to do so yeah is the inaccuracy doing harm i think that's that's a good guideline to use Mm. i might throw that at my students next semester and be like is it doing harm though and they'd be like but yeah i think i think that's a good way to look at it yeah Mm. so to bring it back to pedagogy do you Mm -hmm. think there's room in a lesson to kind of introduce some of Beyond just how is this film dealing with this historical figure or this historical period, how are we then receiving this film? Yeah. And what's our relationship to the film? I think that's vital. In fact, actually, it applies to all cultural material, right? Because, you know, I work a lot with visual material, printed visual culture, and you have to think about reception. You have to think about it. You have to understand the process. The way that it's received is not going to be the same for each person and so on and so forth. So I think we we owe it to students to think about reception and response. And sometimes it's hard because we don't have audience testimony for every film ever. We don't have people saying, I went to see this and it was great. Mm -hmm. Or I felt this about this historic moment that was depicted in this movie. But we do have to, to make them think about reception and about the contemporary audience and how they're seeing things and how we see things in different ways as well. I think we owe it to them. Mm. If we're going to, you know, make them informed and critical viewers and consumers of culture, and I mean critical in the sort of a critic sense rather than just a negative sense, we owe it to have that conversation mm. because mm. it's part of the it's part of the story. It's one of the skills that we can teach them as humanities academics who use film, I think. I'm sure they'll all be familiar with a message board or like, you know, tweeting about something and the conversations that come from that. So That might Mm. be a really interesting way in also to discussing like how these things end up as part of the discourse and how we engage with them outside the movie theater or off our laptop or whatever. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how kids these days are watching movies on a phone. (laughs) On a phone, probably on a phone. (laughs) Yeah, um, which is so depressing. But yeah, they're probably watching on a phone. (laughs) And they're probably, I mean, they're mediating it through things like memes and kind of references and stuff like yeah. that's it's it's that mm. i think is where they're they're kind of that's where the discourse yeah. is as well i mean you know just just look up the hashtag dem dragons d-e-m dragons for it's for house of the dragon and basically it's unbelievable it's so funny they're, they're this so it, it's a subculture it's like a, it's like a subculture of a fandom it's incredible they're so wow. witty and good but they're so like it's so funny like i just it's such a funny hashtag There've been some unbelievable memes on mm. there that I just could not stop laughing about some of the recent episodes. And it's someone I follow who's like a beauty blogger is also a fan and she had been using this hashtag. And 
I was like, what? what? Is this official? And then I clicked on it and I was like, oh, this is incredible. This is this incredible fan fandom within a fandom mm. and bringing a very particular kind of discourse, I think, to the way they read it. And I was like, this is this is really interesting. This is really, really fun. And mm. that's how people are talking about that series with each other as well. They're putting memes on, on Twitter and using set hashtags that are specifically for a certain fandom and a certain culture. And it's fascinating, fascinating to me. Thanks again to our guest, Laura, for her extra time today. As always, you can follow us at GodMovPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also contact us or donate on our website, godsandmoviemakers.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing. Until next time, I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner. Mm-hmm.